This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Salotooth people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is December 5th, 2019, and this is episode 167. I'm Scott Delonaboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Today, let's talk about the big throne speech that came down today, and I guess how the government's not going to fall, because the block exists. a real nail-biter. We're going to talk about how the BC government did absolutely nothing when a MLA came forward and told them he was detained by China, and it wasn't the current sitting government. And then we'll just touch on the Premier's meeting. First, we have to thank those who help make the show possible. We are at 72 patrons who give us money every month. We did lose three in the last since last week, which is a little bit heartbreaking. I guess people look at the end of the month. It's Christmas time. I get it. There's a lot of demands on your money. Uh, it was Giving Tuesday, and as someone who works in charities and nonprofits, that's exhausting, and I know you hate us asking for money, but if we get a ton, maybe we'll stop. Or maybe we'll start releasing episodes again that don't contain these begging sections and that will be your encouragement to give also, us also it just makes the show more sustainable and means we can continue to do this week after week exactly because we want to keep going through 2020 on to 2021 so we can talk about the provincial election when it happens then and maybe there'll be a federal election next year but go to patreon.com slash and give us money for christmas or whatever you celebrate or don't and if you can't give us money, do go on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit. Yell at random people in the street. Tell them about the show. Thanks go to Cortado Productions for helping us make the show and BC Today for their continued partnership. BC Today, as everyone knows, is British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for your free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Together, in a vague, somewhat forward direction, let's talk about the throne speech. But actually, before we talk about the throne speech... There's one procedural thing that comes up first. I mean, there's a lot of... Well, a lot of them, but one big one and... thing that uh, people are watching. Yeah. Especially because the... a certain uh, MP and former party leader uh, put herself in contention, but then didn't. So we are, of course, talking about the Speaker of the House. This is the referee, the person who moderates the debates. It's the chair of the meeting. The Speaker in BC, very controversial when Daryl Plekis became the Speaker. Federally, it's a little less of a prominent role because generally things move smoothly, but they're also the person who adjudicates debates. And in a minority parliament, that could be very important. So five people ended up putting their names forward, or more accurately for the pedants listening, uh, didn't take their names out of the running because technically every member is in contention for the role until you say, I don't want to be that. It's stupid. I don't get it. Anyway. Well, I, th- I think it actually has to do back from like old timey British parliament. Well, actually probably English parliament. Everything does. At that time where speakers had a tendency to piss off the monarch and suffer some unfortunate consequences. So it was not as much as an honor as it was. That's also why they have the tradition of carrying the speaker up to his seat uh, and having him hauled up there. So in contention were the incumbent speaker, Jeff Reagan from the Liberals, as well as Anthony Rota. Uh, Bruce Stanton and Joel Godin also put their name forward. And the NDP's Carol Hughes. This was the first time that the house decided to elect the speaker by secret and ranked ballot oh so that was the last election that was going to be under first past the post yeah didn't you hear that bracket every time trudeau made that promise i saw one place report that there was only one round of balloting but i also saw others say they weren't going to report how many rounds of balloting there were or who won each round regardless the outcome was a little bit of a surprise as the liberal anthony rota took it and everyone had to go who at least i did yeah, I had to doodle him too. Uh, he's a MP from Northern Ontario, been in the House since 2004, briefly lost his seat during the 2011 to 2015 government. and Never had a- any role of prominence as far as I can tell, just a liberal backbencher. Uh, former political science professor, or at least he was during his 
I guess, electoral hiatus. Must have given a rousing five-minute speech compared to the others because he won the confidence of people from all sides of the aisle. So congrats, Mr. Rota. We look forward to being you being the new speaker. I guess he's the first Italian-Canadian speaker. Are we sure about that? There's been a lot of... Uh... I don't know Italian if there's Canadians been that. elected to Parliament, oh, I think. Maybe. Uh, I did see one factoid that we've only ever had one woman as Speaker of the House of Parliament, and that was like 1980 to 1984. And she later went on to be Order of Canada or the Senate. It's a very male-dominated field. But after they pick the Speaker, they go on to the throne speech. The Governor General, Julie Payette, former astronaut, gets to read it and talk. So there, was, there was a bit of stuff talking about the planet yeah, that Earth and the spaceship got Earth. thrown in there, I guess, to really lean on the, hey, look, everyone, we made an astronaut governor general. But yeah, the throne speech is written by the government of the day, read by the monarch or her representative, which is the governor general, and projects the government's agenda. MPs then debate it and vote on it. And if the government loses that vote, they lose their government, which is what happened here in BC. And then we ended up with the NDP. This throne speech was titled, Moving Forward Together. At some point, the Liberals are going to run out of ways to stick forward or the middle class into a sentence. But that is not today. No. This speech was filled with a lot of platitudes. Like, I had to keep scrolling and scrolling through some of them. It was then divided into five major sections. Well, four and kind of a joke at the end about global affairs that was just really heavy on the platitudes. First section is fighting climate change. You know, you want to put your strong foot out forward to signal your intention for the year, and the government wants to talk about climate change. And they talk about their goal of setting a target of net zero emissions by 2050, which was what they talked about in the election. Yeah, in fact, that's a recurring theme as I scroll through the notes here, is it's largely the Liberals' platform from the election. Uh, but yeah, in addition to the the net zero by 2050, they want to protect 25% of Canada's land and 25% of Canada's oceans by 2025. Plan- I noticed a theme in that pledge, 25. Yes. It's not a good theme. They want to plant 2 billion trees. This was their, like, we're going to have nature help us fight climate change, which, okay. No one's against planting trees, I think. No. No one's that excited about it except liberals, though, it seemed like. I think the goal with planting trees is to be a sink. Yeah, they're they're carbon sink. Yeah, pulls greenhouse gases out of the air. But when your climate section ends off with the statement, and while the government takes strong action to fight climate change, it will also work just as hard to get Canadian resources to new markets and offer unwavering support to the hardworking women and men in Canada's natural resources sector, many of whom have faced tough times recently. So this is the run down the middle thing that the world has been doing forever, so... I don't think there's really much noteworthy to that. I mean, the most frustrating part for me for the climate change section is there was nothing bold, new, or ambitious in it. Like, two billion trees, fine. That is a lot of trees. And net zero by 2050 is the bold, ambitious goal we need. Some argue it needs to be in 10 years, but I don't know how we do that. 10 years is not feasible. Maybe 2025, but fine. By 2050. 30. Yeah. But there's nothing clear in here about how we get there there's that, some that's big... typical for a throne speech though it, throne speeches are rarely complicated policy documents where they lay out the details of how they're going to do something well let's get into the next section because that does have a little bit more detail that's the strengthening the middle class section as but, it's but first... are they strengthening those who want to join it oh we have new language let me read straight from the throne speech as its first act the government will cut taxes for all but the wealthiest canadians giving more money to the middle-class families and those who need it most. So it's middle-class and those who need it most. The fun thing about tax cuts is we have a low-income threshold in Canada. So a tax cut doesn't actually help people earning below that, and those are people who are in poverty. So a tax cut doesn't do anything for them. I'm not saying a tax cut is bad. I think I fit right in the middle of that middle-class Canadians, and I'd actually prefer to pay a little more taxes if it got me a little bit more. I don't need a tax cut. I know there's a lot of people who want it, want it though. And apparently that's going to be the, not bill one, but the first bill that's the, actually the substantive. bill two after they've declared the supremacy of parliament? Yes. Uh, in addition to the tax cut, there's going to be vague investments in affordable housing and 
also making it easier for people to buy their first home. So I think this is changes to CMHC rules, well, this the is, mortgage think, rules. I don't think that's so much the mortgage rules. I think that's the, we're going to take out an equity stake in people's first-time mortgages uh, program that they announced right before the election. So on the one hand, investing in new affordable housing is great. On the other hand, funding people to buy more homes leads to more a higher, a hotter market. And so that drives out housing prices. You kind of can't do both, at least in hot markets like Vancouver. Fine, help people buy, buy homes in rural Saskatchewan. It won't harm anything, but... Well, that's the thing, though. In the election, they promised to revamp their we're going to help people buy stuff to raise the limit on how expensive those homes could be so that markets like Vancouver and Toronto could benefit. Well, benefit in air quotes. The next thing that looks like it will help me personally is the government promises to give families more time and money to help raise their kids. As someone with a kid now, money and time is very valuable to me. Uh, And they want to make before and after school care more accessible and affordable. They talked a lot in the election about, you know, expanding the child Canada Child Benefit and a number of these other programs that have actually been pretty successful. Uh, Next up, they want to cut the cost of cell phone and wireless services by 25%. Also another uh, one pulled right from the platform and still no idea how to do it. The last one was basically, we'll send strongly worded letters to Rogers in hopes that that will get them to lower prices. Yeah, like this is one of those pocketbook issues that everyone gets. Everyone knows we're being bilked on our cell phones and internet services. Just have to look at Quebec or Saskatchewan where they have local competitors to the big three. And yeah, they have the lowest cell phone bills in the country because, yeah, the big three suck and are an oligopoly. Nationalize one of their infrastructures and then like we can or make start it up cheaper. A drone, start up a crown corporation to do it too. Like There's ways of cutting cell phone bills, but just will be angry at the telecoms unless they do it is not one of them. The next couple items are strengthening pensions, giving more support to students. Again, things from the throne speech. They're also going to move forward with the new NAFTA as part of helping the middle class. There was a part in there that you'll appreciate about helping protect the incomes of the dairy farmers from in, who might be affected by changes to supply management. Ugh. And finally... To protect the middle class, they will ensure fairness for all in a new digital space by reviewing the rules that are currently in place, which is like the least ambitious thing I've ever heard. Like, we're going to make sure everything is good by just, like, checking that it's okay. Isn't that what they should be doing anyway on everything? Like, talk to anyone who uses social media and, like, interacts with politics, and we know it's not a great world out there, and there's a lot of problems. Doing a review of the rules, like, we know the rules aren't working. I don't know that they should be stronger. I don't know that they should be weaker, but... Ensure fairness for digital space reads to me like uh, it's going to be trying to force more Canton onto Netflix more than anything else. Well, let's move into walking the road of reconciliation. And when I first read that, I was trying to figure out if that is a like a phrase that actually exists, walking the road. It felt weird. It felt clunky. Maybe it sounded better spoken than... Could be. On the I mean, I, I get the metaphor they're going for there, but... Eh. The thing that'll be exciting for British Columbian wa- political watchers is the federal government has now committed, or at least the Trudeau government has committed through the throne speech, to consulting over the next year and bringing in a bill similar to BC's to enact UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, into federal law by the end of next year. This is something that was on the order paper before Parliament rose for the election, but died in the Senate because of conservative, effective filibustering. This is promising stuff, and it'll be interesting to see what is different in that bill federally than either the previous private member's bill or the one we brought in here in BC. Well, it's probably going to be more contentious, for sure, than the one we brought in in BC. Which received unanimous support. Yes, I I'm pretty much guarantee this will not be receiving unanimous support federally. Continuing on the road of reconciliation, they have promised again, I guess, to eliminate all long-term drinking water advisories on reserves by 2021. This was something they famously promised to do in 2015 within that mandate, at least, if not shorter. They do champion some of the progress they've made on it. It's a hard problem. Actually, it's not a hard problem. It's just an expensive problem. You have to throw money to make water systems clean. 
Yeah, they, they've gotten a fair bit of progress on the long-term drinking water advisories, but yeah, still work to be done. And it's not, it does talk a little bit more about making sure everyone has access to clean water, but long-term advisories, once you've eliminated those, you haven't fixed the problem entirely. Yes, because there's still short-term advisories. Yeah. They also want to pass a new bill to ensure Indigenous people have access to culturally relevant healthcare and mental health services. They want to continue implementing the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation and Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls reports, which is you know consistent with what the Liberals have been talking about. And they want to close the infrastructure gap by 2030, which could be a lot of spending on building up roads. That gets complicated water. when you get into a lot of the smaller northern communities. So what, what that means in practice, I think, remains to be seen. And finally, they're going to make sure that Indigenous peoples who are harmed under what is called discriminatory child welfare systems, which is accurate, if not downplaying it a little, uh, are compensated in a way that is both fair and timely. And this is an interesting one to see in there because this is what the NDP have been calling on the federal government to drop the appeals of the Canada Human Rights Commission's finding that they owe a lot of money to cover children who were harmed in these systems. They, they did announce they were dropping that last week. Oh, I did I totally miss that? Yeah. Or was that a different one? The settlement for the payout for the show uh, that became okay. a big controversy during the election. Uh, yeah, they, they did announce they were going to settle that. Well, that's good then. Well, moving from the road of reconciliation to keeping Canadians safe and healthy, the government's going to ban your, take your guns. Specifically, they're going to try to crack down on gun crime by banning military-style assault rifles and taking steps to introduce a buyback program. And they also want to give communities the ability to ban handguns if they want to. We've talked a few times before about that one. It seems to be messy to try to make the municipalities do it, especially because they don't have criminal code writing powers, but firearms are largely a criminal code thing. Yeah, how do you ban guns in... Kelowna, if we consider it a sizable municipality, but not the Okanagan writ large. People with more expertise in guns than I have a lot of notes about what constitutes a handgun or military-style assault rifle that the liberal policymakers seem to not get. Yeah, the, the Canadian, what gets classified as what under the Canadian gun laws is somewhat arbitrary at times, especially when you look at something like military-style which just, it's not actually a descriptor of the mechanism of the firearm. It's just when I see it, I go, army men hold that, right? Yeah, so you can have two guns that are effectively the same, but one has like a nice wood grain stock and the other is black plastic. And one of those gets treated differently than the other. Yeah, see, that doesn't seem to make any sense. We'll have to do a deeper dive into guns at some point, because... It is a fascinating and just getting an understanding of where our system is and why it's actually pretty good. Like, there's always tweaks and improvements, but, you know, we might not actually need full bands like this to be effective. Would be a good show. Moving on, there's going to be, I think this is a little less controversial, a national action plan to address gender-based violence and a strategy to tackle that. Uh, in the throne speech, they mention... This comes on the eve of the L'Ecole Polytechnic Massacre, which is December 6th, which will be when this episode's coming out. So do take a moment to remember the women who were gunned down by the misogynist terrorist 30 years ago. It was quite a while ago, 1989, I want to say it was. But yeah, we're both engineering student or engineering grads. And that's something that I think there is an awareness among engineers. Of I, that I actually event. got an email today from EGVC about uh, the remembrance of that. So yes. Important event and tackling gender-based violence is an important step. I also want to put out there that Nora Loretto has a good piece in the National Observer on the Ecole Polytechnique massacre and remembering it and tackling not just overt, terrible, obvious terrorist attacks like that, but a lot of the lower-level harassment of women that happens on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'll try and remember to put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, also in the section, there's a few, no uh, few points about improving mental health care and mental health standards, making it easier to get uh, treatment for opioid addiction, and of course the big one. Just before we jump into the big one, the opioid overdose epidemic is something that's, you know, big here in British Columbia and I think is becoming bigger across the country. And I think we're getting used to calls here in BC for more radical steps to tackle that. 
I just want to say it's disappointing not to see anything beyond make it easier for people to get the help they need in the throne speech. Like, I know the liberals weren't going to come out and say, we will decriminalize all drugs, even though their members have voted for that resolution. Do member resolutions really count? No. We talked last week about why conventions are pointless. But hopefully we can see the government continue to try to do something. The liberals have been good at at least making, at least not attacking safe injection sites and some of those positive steps. But there's a lot more radical stuff we need to be talking about. Listen to Crackdown podcast to hear from the front line. But yes, the big one. Pharmacare. It made its appearance in here, as I think everyone was expecting. There will be steps to introduce and implement a national pharmacare so that you can get the drug coverage you need, which it gets a vague promise, but it's at least clear that they're talking about pharmacare. They're talking about the need for it within the Canadian healthcare system. We know the Liberals talked in the election about following one of the reports that they'd commissioned fairly closely. The NDP wanted it much faster and probably at this rate that couldn't have been done, but it's well, there. Well, didn't they uh, promise to have something in place like in 2020? Yeah, maybe even by the end of 2019. <laughs> Why not? So like three weeks from after Parliament comes back. Yeah. All you have to do is throw money at it and the government can literally print as much money as they want. There are consequences to doing that, but they can do it. Actually, I think you'd first have to change the Bank of Canada at... It gets complicated to fit this in a uh, couple weeks before Christmas. Yeah. Well, and the last thing to make Canadians healthier is to improve mental health care supports for veterans and to make sure every homeless veteran has a home. Basically, they just kind of ended with a, oh yeah, and veterans deserve some support, kind of highlighting the fact they have not always received the support from the federal government that we should give. And then we get into the global politics issue with the Positioning Canada for Success in an Uncertain World section. And I didn't copy many points in because most of it was just talking about, you know, keeping the respect Canada has earned and, you know, not embarrassing ourselves on the world Which stage. Which is kind of awkward timing on that one. Okay, they didn't promise not to embarrass themselves, but exactly. <laughs> okay. I think you're alluding to the Trump versus and Trudeau spat at NATO, which we're not going to talk about. Yeah. Because it's a stupid story. That, that is exactly what I'm alluding to with that. All right. What they do commit to is renewing our commitment to NATO and the United Nations peacekeeping. And also, they I talk... I mean, that's a fairly typical liberal line. They, they haven't been too willing to actually, you know, put money and troops into that sort of thing. So I, I am not expecting that to really change this parliament. And they also talk about involvement in the United Nations, notably the Security Council, which reads pretty strongly like we're going to keep trying to get that Security Council seat because the prestige is very important to the Liberals. And, I mean, the Security Council of the UN bodies is kind of important. Yes, although the non-permanent members are less so. So that's the throne speech overall. It's basically, like you said, the Liberal platform just rejigged. Doesn't seem like they targeted this at getting the NDP support or at getting conservatives or the bloc. In other words, so they accomplished their mission then, because it turns out the Tories and the uh, NDP aren't going to be supporting this. Yeah, we saw that headline just as we were sitting down to record, so I don't have the full why they disagree with it, but I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that Yves-Francois Blanchette, the leader of the Bloc Québécois, had already came out and said, yeah, I'll vote for that, in which case... There's no consequence to not voting for it. And so for the NDP, vote against it so that you and say it should be more clear that pharmacare is in there and it should be more bold on this and there's no action on climate change promised and the Conservatives were going to vote against it no matter what because they're the official opposition and they think they should be government. Uh, oh, so their instinct is to automatically oppose everything but they're not their official oppositions. So. I mean, you look even here in B.C., at the throne speech the Christy Clark liberals gave just before their government fell. And that was the exact opposite strategy, which was, let's put forward everything the opposition wants in our throne speech and dare them to vote against it. And then they did anyway, because they'd already decided they were going to work together. So it's all politics, is what I'm saying. And sometimes the words don't actually matter. Yeah. Despite... If anything, the, the message here is the liberals are going to more or less keep going as they were before. Whether that works as well in a minority parliament it's going to be interesting to watch and just briefly speaking of the opposition last week we did talk about the critics in the ndp and 
some of the head yeah. portfolios given to conservatives, but the conservatives released their shadow cabinet. Yes, which Friday is actually, morning, actually, between recording and releasing the podcast, which is annoying and bad timing on their part. Well, and also, this is the first time I think the conservatives or any opposition in Canada has really called it a shadow cabinet, which is a British term. It's been used in Canada before. A little bit? Okay. I've definitely heard it being referred to as that. Okay. Anyway, the Conservatives announced who their critics are. I skimmed the list, and it seemed largely status quo from who the critics were prior to that. Now, opposition critics, you don't always remember who's who because they're a little more forgettable and they're not as in the spotlight as ministers. Anything jump out at you, Scott? Well, they gave fisheries and oceans to someone from the interior of BC, which is just right. There's a lake in there. (laughs) I heard the it, ocean part is half the title of it. I heard some argument that fisheries and oceans deals a lot with interior lakes and waterways, but that seemed like a stretch. Yeah. And the Conservatives have MPs who are on coastlines, right? They have some out in Atlantic Canada. I think Atlantic least. Canada, yeah. Well, yeah, no, I think they hold the area around the Bay of Fundy area in uh, New Brunswick and a few other spots. So, yeah, they, they could find someone from a coast if they needed to. Or wanted to. Uh, other than that, they put Michael Chong exactly where he should be, which is democratic for institutions. O'Toole remains foreign affairs. Decent choice there. Pierre Polyevra is in the finance critic role, so which was as he was before, but you know, he's the, the annoying yeah, attack dog. Attack dog, bulldog, guy who just likes to get it under everyone's skin. Who's the critic for middle class prosperity? So they don't actually have that. Shocking, I know. They also don't have a critic for those wanting to join it. Uh, they do have a critic for ethics, and I remarked before the show that it actually doesn't... Uh, it makes sense only to have a critic of ethics. You shouldn't have a minister of ethics. Everyone should just be ethical when you're a minister. Uh, they do actually have a an associate critic of finance, which does mirror what the middle class one is, although they decided not to call it the middle class critic. They should have just gone with like either those working to join it or the critic for... You know, the working and the wealthy, the other classes. Although you can't represent them both, I guess, in a Marxian analysis. Somehow I don't think that's really weighing on the minds of the Conservative Party. Uh, they did have a critic for international human rights and religious freedom, though, which I thought was pretty on brand for the Conservatives. But yeah, otherwise, I think the most noteworthy story about the Shadow Cabinet was who wasn't in it, and that's BC MP Ed Fast who was apparently given a call by Shear and said, oh, what cabinet, what critic role do you want? And he said, none, thank you very much. And then he went to the media and told them that he said, none, thank you very much, which usually you're polite enough to keep that to yourself. Yeah, he, he definitely wanted it to be known that uh, he was not very supportive of Andrew Shear's leadership, which is one of the first like real signs in the caucus. Uh, it's also worth knowing that he is a former cabinet minister, so this isn't some backbencher either. Yeah, he said Mr. Shear, I believe, is entitled to surround himself with a team that fully supports his leadership, and I'm looking forward to remaining fully in, a, in the affairs of our Conservative caucus and to holding Justin Trudeau to account for his actions and his words and how he leads this country, which says a lot by not saying the words, I support Andrew Shear," and by notably saying there are those who support Andrew Shear and he should have those beside him. So quite an interesting little bit of drama there. We'll see if other MPs start to come forward and if there's a bigger push to outshear besides what we talked about last week with the Ontario Proud guys. Yeah, I actually started getting Facebook ads from them. They, they did not waste any time. Like literally the day after we talked about it, they started getting spam in my Facebook feed on that. But yeah, it, it's going to be an interesting convention, but that's not till April. Well, the next week of Parliament is going to be debating the throne speech. It will probably not actually be that exciting because in the end, they've already passed the vote because the bloc is committed to it. And then we get to take a winter break. Moving on to segment two, Mr. Lee goes to China and Mr. Horgan goes to Toronto. Two stories that don't really fit together other than they're both about British Columbia in some way. Could have really split them up in a separate segment. We could have. I didn't. First, let's talk about this global news report from Sam Cooper, pretty much an exclusive. Then everyone picked up on it and got a bit more details about former MLA Richard Lee from the BC Liberals and how he got arrested in China. Well, detained. 
So this was when he was heading to China in 2015. Uh, got detained at the airport when he landed there for about eight hours, separated from his wife who was traveling with him. They took his phone, his government-issued phone. Government-issued phone, and had him input the password into it, which is really bad. Yeah, he he describes this account as kind of saying, well, I didn't want to give up my password, but I figured they were more interested in me as a person of Chinese descent than as a government minister. And that is so, a really big assumption to make there. Yeah, and he figured he would get out and back to Canada faster if he co- cooperated a bit more and see his family. He also apparently kept using the phone afterwards, which was definitely not a good call. Thing should have been smashed. Yeah, I guess the Chinese accuse, accused him of endangering national security. Which uh, is a catch-all in China for yeah. saying stuff about the government that the government doesn't like. And, then, and, and Mr. Lee has been a fairly vocal supporter of democracy in China and the surrounding areas. Good thing. His visa was cancelled, he was sent back to Canada, and he's, as far as I can tell, been banned from going back to China since. Which means he's kind of like Jugmeet Singh in that Singh is banned from going to India for supporting human rights of the Sikhs in Khalistan. Lee claims that basically he stayed silent because he didn't want to cause, quote, a lot of problems between Canada-China relationships. It but seems over... like that's more on China there. Well, in, over the I mean, last several years, he basically says he's seen more and more attempts to influence our political system, our elected leaders. He's seen control of Chinese-Canadian immigrants and just attempts to silence all criticisms of Beijing's policies, and that's why he's decided to speak up now, four years later, because this was all back in November 2015. Yeah, I mean, at that time, people were still laboring under the incorrect assumption that uh, China wasn't as forceful, assertive, or and could maybe still be integrated into the international order without being too disruptive. And that's really changed the last couple of years. I mean, when all the stuff about concentration camps came out, that really affected things. But we can come back to that if we need to. When Lee got back to Canada, he says he told fellow members of the BC Liberal Government Caucus about this whole situation, that he'd been detained, that he gave up his cell phone, that the Chinese accessed it. And the party did nothing as far as he could tell. He was told by, quote, one senior BC Liberal Government minister, who it turns out was Rich Coleman, that, oh, you should just go to Ottawa. You know, you should talk to the feds because Which, what are we going to do? I do find it a little odd that he went... Oh, I, I get why he talked to people in his party, but only talking to people in his party seems weird on this. I don't know. If it happened to me, my first call would be to CSIS and then the RCMP in that order. Yeah, I guess he was not wanting to cause trouble. And so he mostly talked to his party because maybe there were secrets on his phone relating to the BC government that he was like, guys, we should... Just be aware, they probably know what we want. So after that, Lee is quiet for several years. He doesn't run in 2017. Does he... stand in the by-election. Yeah, he runs against Jagmeet Singh yeah. in the spring, but then his health declines after, and he doesn't run in the federal election. In January of this year, he did send his letter to Christopher Freeland, Justin Trudeau, and Jody Wilson-Raybould, who were then Foreign Affairs Prime Minister and Attorney General in that order, noting all of this and saying hey, this happened to me, maybe someone should look into it. And he heard nothing until Global News called the government and said, why has this guy who's talking to us not heard anything? And then he got a letter like two days later from the government just saying, we'll look into this. This is really reassuring. So Rich Coleman gets quoted on his affairs in this at a press conference. He says, it's obviously a federal issue. It's a bit before fuddling four years later that he didn't do anything with it at the time, which I thought he would have. My understanding back then was he had come back to Canada, he was going to talk to his MP or somebody federally, and I would have assumed he did that. Coleman also claims not to have been told about the phone, so that's kind of a he said, he said. Uh, There's not a lot to go forward on this story, but it's just kind of an of note, this is something that happened that was really bad. Like when our when our politicians are being detained in other countries, that should be a big story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, MLAs don't get the diplomatic passports when they just travel around. But still, as a general rule, governments don't detain politicians unless there's really... 
good reason. Or, you know, they want to flex the muscle in China's case. So, yeah, how the federal government, how the present BC government goes forward with China is going to be something to watch. Yeah, we talked about it last week. And, yeah, how Canada, well, everyone deals with China is, I think, going to be one of the big defining issues of the next several decades. And so far, it's not going great. Yeah, I'm increasingly of the, we can take a stronger stance because what's come out about their treatment of the Uyghurs and other, you know, and people in Hong Kong protesting is terrifying and worrying and that influencing Canada. Yeah, there's the very obvious human rights problems. There's also just the fact that realistically at this point, China is a geopolitical adversary and should be treated like one. Well, let's go from global adversaries to weird domestic friendships. Well, it's not that weird because what you're alluding to is the premier's meeting. And there's nothing premiers agree on more than one in Ottawa to give them more money. Yes, on December 2nd, I believe it was, they all met in Toronto and managed to come out with a joint letter on shared priorities. So those priorities being more money from the federal government, mostly. Pretty much in several different and interesting ways. The joint letter has what they agree on. So it doesn't talk about whether they disagreed about Bill 21 or... Pipelines. Pipelines specifically. The letter is optimistic and supports ensuring access to markets for natural resources. How you do that without building more pipelines is a good question. One thing that's a little surprising that made it in there was essentially a call to amend significantly Bill C-69, the federal government's recently passed environmental assessment regime. So this is what came through right at the end of Trudeau's four-year mandate and was one of his signature promises in 2015. And some of that really pissed off the Alberta and Saskatchewan premiers. Yeah, because one part of this new regime is that the federal government can kind of stick its nose in major projects within a province that are solely within that province. So this would be like the oil sands developments in Alberta and the federal and so a new development in the oil sands would need to seek provincial approval and federal approval to say we will be this clean. Now the federal government's argument is pollution affects us all. Green, you know, climate change affects us all. So we need to be able to monitor this. And the provinces say fuck you, it's in our province. And so this letter uh, from the premier says we should be able to get that provincial exemption back. Why I'm a bit surprised to see it in there is because BC and Quebec are both fairly strong on the environment files and environmental assessments. But I guess it makes sense if they're on the... Provincial powers for provinces? Yeah, that's definitely Quebec's thing. Unsurprisingly, all the provinces want support for Canadian trade around the world, like fighting softwood lumber tariffs and the Buy America provisions that harm Canadian exports. Nothing surprising there. Want to amend the fiscal stabilization program to basically allow more flexibility when it comes to resource revenue-dependent provinces? Yeah, so this is a huge proposal they're asking for. Uh, Right now, the federal government gives a bit of money to provinces when there's ups and downs to help make sure that our country keeps moving. So even if a province struggles a little bit, the federal government can step in. Alberta and Saskatchewan and Newfoundland are actually really hurting under low oil prices. And they're claiming, well, we should be given a handout to help, you know, get through this. They're talking about things like removing, and part of the reason they're struggling is because there's a per capita cap on the payouts from the federal government. So Alberta can't get more than $60 per person. And they also want to change some of the revenue thresholds, essentially, and also make it retroactive for over five years so that Alberta could get more money. Five years, that's exactly when oil prices started to fall, interestingly. And the way I see this, frustratingly, is almost as like a handout to provinces that haven't figured out that maybe there are better ways to fund your province than like the up and down roller coaster that is resource royalties like at some point alberta needs to tackle its revenue problem and this feels like a way to put that off yeah it's a subsidy for bad economic decisions and like yes alberta needs help but alberta could also just implement a sales tax and be fine or bring its 
income taxes up to BC's level and be pretty good. And both of those keep it pretty competitive still. Mm-hmm. Although in BC's case, this would probably affect the stumpage fees we get to charge with relation to, or not affect it, but you know, as the forestry industry goes through a small a collapse right now, I suppose in theory BC could be getting some of that. I guess this is how you get the buy-in from every province in this change. It's a pledge that says, hey, give every province more money when they need it. I mean, it'll mostly benefit Alberta and Newfoundland. Newfoundland. The next one is also about money. It's increasing the health funding escalator by 5.2% per year, creating an additional billion-dollar cost on the federal coffers per year. Yeah. So this is one of the other ones that's always a perennial in the things the provincial premiers want to ask from Ottawa, and that's because healthcare takes up about half of most provinces' spending. So it's a huge thing. It's only getting more expensive. So, uh, I mean, they, they want some more, obviously, and I can see why. But at the same time, just because it is such a huge chunk of spending in the country, it's not necessarily clear that the long-term sustainable trend involves just throwing more money at it. I, I, I do think, realistically, especially as the population ages, we're going to have to figure out how to deliver healthcare more cost-effectively. I mean, one thing that I think can do a lot more is making sure people have the medicines they need because when they skip medicines, they tend to get sicker. And so a pharmacare plan can actually help us on the long term. Now, the pharmacare plan itself is going to cost a whole bunch and provinces would like the opportunity to opt out of that. But But still get the transfer payments. Of course. Of course they should still get the money. So the the money that the federal government would be paying them to do something with, they also want to be paid to not do something with that same money. And what really gets me is I saw the comment in one source that I lost where it's claimed that three provinces think they already have pharmacare plans in place. And one of them is Quebec. And fine, I would believe that Quebec has a reasonable pharmacare plan. Another is Alberta, where I'm pretty confident most people don't get subsidized drugs or bulk purchase drugs from the government. Maybe there's something to help people on low income that they consider sufficient, but... Well, I, so I think there's only something like 15% of Canadians don't have some coverage through their uh, employer. employer. So, you know, if that's why they're working on I could see how they get there. But it's a bold claim. And Jason Kenney has already said that he would opt out of any federal pharmacare plan if given the option. So this is what you voted for, Alberta. If you want pharmacare, Kenney's not going to be the guy to give it to you. Brian Pallister out of Manitoba was also saying on pharmacare and the briefings on the premier's meeting that he thinks a more important priority for the federal government should be fixing the system we have rather than talking about expanding it. Let's walk and chew gum at the same time, I say. And finally, the premiers would like to see infrastructure funding rolled out faster and a lot more of it invested in the North, both of which are reasonable positions, I think. The North needs a lot and it shouldn't take a long time to get shovels in the ground for major projects. So yeah, another overall chummy meeting for premiers who have a common foe, which is Ottawa. Mm-hmm. That's usually what unites the premiers. I, I just wish these meetings would lead to more than just calls for more money for the provinces. Uh, they used to lead to calls for free trade agreements. And then we got half of one. Well, it's like... Like internal free trade agreements. Yeah, I was going to say, it's more like two-fifths of one or something. <laughs> There's a lot of work left to be done on that. It's getting easier to take your beer across provincial lines. Ever so slightly. Without being arrested. Well, let's move on to quick takes and start with what's become a perennial senseg, our talk about the Senate, because there's more actual important news. I'm not trying to just fit stuff about the Senate into this show to keep senseg going, but this actually matters. So we talked in previous shows about the makeup of the Senate and how that's been shifting around with the new and different parties that are being created. Something that we also mentioned in there is there are three kind of government representatives. There was Senator Peter Harder, who was the government's representative, and his two deputies, Diane Bellamare and Grant Mitchell. It turns out in the last week, all three of them have resigned from their posts as government representatives, and they're all going to sit as independents or possibly join one of the caucuses. I haven't fully figured that out. I heard there's a caucus looking for members. The progressives. (laughs) Well, one of them, I think Grant Mitchell was a conservative before, 
So he's probably more a CSG guy. But all of this kind of raises the question of who's going to champion the government bills through the Senate now? Yeah, because that was actually something they ran into very early on as they realized, oh, even though we made everyone independent, we actually do need someone to introduce the bills into the Senate. Trudeau brushed it off as, don't worry, we'll find someone. But this is actually a major challenge for the government if no one steps forward. And it's not clear that there's a significant benefit to doing it. I mean, you get a little more press attention, but you kind of lose your independence, which is the whole yeah, and some the hard, whole benefit. Yeah, it's more work yeah. there. I, I'm sure there's someone chummy enough with the Liberal government in the Senate. They can find someone. Or I think there's enough vacancies he could just appoint someone. <laughs> kind of usurping his whole independent appointment process. But that'll be something to watch because, like we said, you need the Senate to pass bills. Mm-hmm. That's how our system works. Uh, well, circling back for another Premier's talk, agreeing to stuff news story... Uh, this time, the premiers of Ontario, Saskatchewan, and New Brunswick have come together to propose developing small nuclear reactors as a uh, climate policy. Cool. I like it. Yeah, it's also nice that those three conservative premiers are actually proposing something that could make a difference rather than... Yelling about saying, taxes. I was just going to say, yeah, saying no to everything. So cool. You know, it's at best one part of the overall picture, but at least we're talking solutions now. So this is Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, and New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs, all three conservatives of different brands. It's a memorandum of understanding to promote small modular reactors, which would essentially be like the next phase of can-do reactors. So most listeners who aren't nuclear nerds like we probably are probably aren't aware Canada actually has a really cool nuclear industry. We have our own special kind of reactor called the CANDU, C-A-N-D-U, that probably stands for something. Canada. Oh, it's a deuterium. I think the D's for deuterium in there. Okay. And these are it's actually... It's a heavy water reactor. So these reactors are much safer, much simpler than many others. As far as I can tell, they don't have the ability to melt down so that you lose that danger. Yeah. So if I recall that uh, when the uh, nuclear material heats, uh, it starts to melt down. It's designed to kind of spread out as it melts and enough to lose criticality yeah so it's cool technology uh i think you can't even enrich the product uh, of it to uh, we- no, make weapons because i believe so, that's part of the controversies is when uh india used our reactors for their program uh anyway it, it stands for canadian deuterium uranium reactor right so it's very cool stuff the small modular reactors i believe is the next kind of phase of that where you get a smaller version that fits in like a it's... school gymnasium size uh, it's not clear from what I read whether this is a evolution of the Canada reactors. Or even if it's just another cool Canadian tech. Yeah, so most reactors weren't haven't been built since the 70s. And since then, there's been a couple generations of development on nuclear reactors, but very little that's actually gotten commercialized. So, like, yeah, the new stuff is really cool. The, the bunch of new technological stuff. It's, you know, the comparison, it's like, how cars in the 70s are so different than cars now and you know a lot has changed since the 70s including nuclear technology and there hasn't been a huge amount of interest in building them but as climate change becomes a more and more pressing issue there's a lot of potential reactor technology out there that could be really interesting if it uh makes that final leap into commercialization i'll just kind of close off here you know the one issue with this is it's still in the future it still requires more investment Nuclear does tend to be more expensive to get going, and building the reactor itself often emits a lot of greenhouse gases. But smaller ones will emit less because there's just less. It's, it's really the but, uh, emissions per uh, kilowatt hour yeah. that really matters. And so there's still a lot of promise here. I'm glad to see it moving forward. It's kind of like I'm also glad to see in most of the party commitments in the UK a commitment to nuclear as part of the solution. Even Labour has building out nuclear as part of their manifesto versus in Canada, the only people talking about it are Conservatives. So mm-hmm. credit to them. I like seeing it. I didn't think I'd be happy to see something out of Doug Ford's government. Or Scott Moe's for that matter. He, he's Of those three, he's been the uh, least willing to propose concrete action on climate stuff. So we'll keep following that. Next, this is a story we missed actually a couple weeks ago. This came out on November 22nd uh, in CBC. It was reporting it from 
Bethany Lindsay, who has actually written a lot of cool stories on pseudoscience and knocking it down. Uh, she reports that the provincial court has actually just released some of the orders the RCMP has been requesting around the whole sergeant at arms and clerk of the legislature investigation. We knew that the RCMP were investigating these two, but we didn't know anything else. We knew, or we knew that special prosecutors had been appointed, but we didn't know what crimes they were charged with, what evidence they were looking for. Every charge, what crimes are being investigated for? Correct. But now we know from some court documents that the police were looking into the purchase of the wood splitter and trailer, <laughs> which is the, which was the best part of it all. Yeah, truckload of alcohol was probably a second, but yeah, the, the wood splitter was definitely the peak of the scandal. So, a justice did grant a production order to Surrey RCMP on April 10th, 2019, to allow for the search of documents relating to Craig James's actions, which were parking, buying this wood splitter and trailer and parking them on his property. And there was the famous photo from Plekis's report of him and Alan Mullen looking out their window, kind of driving by, taking pictures of the wood splitter. So, yeah, the the wood splitter story continues. Yeah, and I guess well, I thought we'd try to nearly wrap up with that, but there's a hint that this relates to a criminal breach of trust, and I guess that would be where the charges come from. The other element of this is that Daryl Plekis did do a Facebook Live interview with Global, and he promised that there will be lots more to come on these stories. So, so, so there's still a chance that something will be vomit worthy to that will be revealed. That was his pro. That was no, his yeah. famous promise. No, that, I know that was uh, his promise. I think he thinks that's already out there, maybe. Okay, but there's something even more interesting that where he hinted that he might seek re-election. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, Daryl Plekis had said. He's not going to run again. More than a couple of weeks ago. Or was it a couple it was like ago? basically when he took the speakership role. He's like, this is my last term. I'm not going to be running again. And in this interview with Global, he kind of left the door open saying, you know, I'm kind of evaluating my options. I might consider it. He's not going to win, though. That's the thing. <laughs> not but as he, an independent with the liberals throwing all they have. Especially the best... in a liber- like in a fairly liberal district, too. Like, it, even if there the Liberals weren't uh, incentivized to retake the seat, it would be a tough battle for him to hold on to that. And, yeah, with the Liberals really wanting him out and that seat back, I don't see how, as an independent, he's going to be able to swing it. So he got 10,700 votes in the 2017 election, taking 53% of the vote to the NDP's Jasleen Aurora, who got 5,600 votes and 28% of the vote. So he could split the Liberal vote in half, exactly, and then the NDP could squeak by. But more likely, the Liberals will just take it, or maybe somehow people will really like him. He did act, this is a seat that has had independents in the past. John Van Doggen was the previous MLA there, who was an independent, and I think BC Conservative at one point, and then probably BC Liberal before that. So, you know... Abbotsford South could go whatever way it wants, but yeah, he it's should probably... Pr- a- Abbotsford South is probably going liberal. He should probably take the, like, high road out. Yeah, because it, it would be a rather embarrassing defeat, especially after he announced he wasn't going to run anyway. So yeah, that, that'll that be fun to see whether it uh, anything comes of it or if it is like Elizabeth May's speaker aspirations that just get floated out there and never actually acted upon. And that has been Plotos. Find links to everything we talked about at Plotos.ca. Support the show and get access to our exclusive Slack channel at patreon.com slash Plotos. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Sopatnikov. And editing services are provided by Cortado Productions. Thanks for listening.